welcome to ILB Pod for Castmas, where we put highbrow literature and conversation with lowbrow Christmas media. I'm Juliet. And I'm Catherine. And today our Christmas media is Carly Rae Jepsen's It's Not Christmas Till Somebody Cries, alongside The Form of the Sword by Jorge Luis Borges. And Les Miserables by Victor Gabriel. Yeah! Wait, is it the form of the sword or the shape of the sword? Same thing. I think it is one of those idiosyncrasies where the shape of the sword is kind of a common English thing for like, that's the the natural one has like the shape of the sword and everything. But like, if you look it up from a scholarly perspective, it's just always referred to as the form of the sword. And so it's, that's it's interesting. I, from a literary perspective, I prefer mm-hmm. shape because the shape of the sword is really, or rather the shape of the scar from the sword is mm-hmm. an important image, this piece. So. Mm-hmm. I think of it kind of like a la recherche du temps perdu, right? That's just all French to me. Which is in search of lost time. Oh, okay. But in English, usually called remembrance of things past. Gotcha, gotcha. So a translation as a more poetic mm-hmm. interpretation. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I just like saying à la recherche de ton perdu because... You say it well. I think recherche is one of those things we should carry over into English. It's a what great is, set of syllables. What does it mean? Like in the same way that like research means to research. Ah. Recherche. Recherche. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, let's research our topic <laughs> for today. So in our first episode of the season, we got a great synopsis of Les Mis from, from Catherine. And It's Not Christmas Till Somebody Cries is both extremely, it's it's a short song. You can go listen to it. And the theme is just in the title there. Uh, yeah. No, as a, no, as a companion piece to both of these works, we have um, the Borges short story, sometimes called The Shape of the Sword, sometimes called Form of the Sword. And in this very feed, if you go back one episode, you can hear Max Newland read that entire short story. Which was awesome, by the way. I just listened to it before recording now, and I really enjoyed both that translation and his performance of it. I'm going to try to give a short summary anyways, just in case, or just in case it's helpful. It's only 15 minutes, though, I will say. So it's a quick listen. Jorge Luis Borges' short story, The Form of the Sword, features Borges as a narrator talking to a European who has settled on a farm in Argentina. First, he tries to appeal to the man's patriotism and compliments England, only to discover that his interlocutor is in fact Irish. The Irishman tells his story of being part of a revolutionary movement against the British. It does not go well for anyone involved. He is saddled with a cowardly new comrade named Vincent Moon, who is briefly injured. The two of them stay at a general's abandoned manor for nine days. On the 10th, returning to the house, he overhears the coward Moon on the telephone, selling our narrator's whole band out to the police. The Irishman chases the traitor through the labyrinth of the house before pulling a scimitar off the wall and carving a moon-shaped mark into Moon's face, just as the police arrive. As the story reaches its tragic conclusion, the Irishman reveals to Borges that he himself is Vincent Moon, that he told his story in inverse so that it would be heard to its conclusion, and that he invites Borges to know him and despise him. Great synopsis there, Juliet. You caught all the the major points. (laughs) I have my whole life struggled with synopsizing Borges, like summarizing Borges, because his stories are so kind of short and to the point. Any act of summary, it's like, well, you're missing kind of both the language and the mystery and everything. Like summarizing the Garden of Forking Paths, you end up with something wholly apart from the garden of forking paths like the plot of that story has nothing to do with the story itself which is a weird thing to say about stories it's almost like you end up with the chat gbt text (laughs) and not the 
human written text that feels more of an experience like you get the the synopsis it's like okay yes technically that's true but there's no soul here mm-hmm. a little empty i wonder if you did a sim like how much does lay Miz fall apart in in summary like if you just say sad people in france like are are you are you <laughs> capturing lay Miz or are you like are you missing something distinct in les miserables it depends if you sing Sad people in France. I think you get a little bit closer to the experience of the musical. <laughs> so this story is what I sometimes like to think of as a part of Borges's Irish trilogy. Uh, that being the form of the sword, the garden of forking paths, and the theme of traitor and hero. We're not going to dig into all of those today as much as I would love to be like, let's <laughs> let's really get into Borges's fascination with like ireland and the irish people's like fight for independence from the british and for like respect in like british culture and everything because i'm very interested in that i you know also spend a lot of time reading james joyce so like i I feel kind of pigeonholed in in some ways but it's uh it's a interesting sort of thing to compare the you know irish war of independence with some of the french aspirations for for independence in uh in Les Miserables amongst the friends of the ABC yeah absolutely we can take a step back from the specifics of Ireland and Borges writing about Ireland and kind of look at the the broader themes and relations with Carly Rae Jepsen of course and mm-hmm. Victor Hugo here's a question I have yeah do stories seem more real or more true when they are sad? <laughs> more real or more true when they are sad? This is a really interesting question because I just saw Annie, <laughs> the musical, mm-hmm. which is sad in a way that does not feel real or true and then has a happy ending. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was thinking a lot about sadness and stories as a form of emotional manipulation to kind of pull in the audience quickly and like manufacture empathy for the characters. Because as soon as you have hungry orphans on stage, there are a lot of audiences that will be like, oh, so sad. I want to see her be happy and get adopted. Um, Mm -hmm. So that can, the sadness can be a way of pulling in audiences quickly in a way that may or may not be warranted by the ultimate story being told. How would you reflect on that with Cosette? How does Cosette, especially Mm -hmm. Cosette amongst the Tenardiers, fit into that paradigm? A little bit. I think especially as a way for getting young people interested in theater. I know as a young girl myself, when I looked to musical theater to see any form of representation, you have Annie, you have Cosette. Those are the two big roles that get played by young feminine children. And I guess Mistress Mary in um, The Secret Garden. But like, that's not a particularly... Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's not quite as mega musically, but yeah, that's another good one. Um, so it is interesting that our only way, if you're a young kid who wants to perform, you have to be sad in order to get cast in these mm-hmm. shows, or you have to play the sad character. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I do just want to put a caveat. I, I'm not convinced on the ethics of employing young children to do professional tours i do think that's a little bit problematic Mm -hmm. um but it exists in the world and it happens so we can talk (laughs) about that as storytelling rather than the like labor aspect of it i think it's interesting to think about you know of course part of the reason i asked this question is it's not christmas till somebody cries feels like slightly more realistic of a christmas song because it's like entailing (laughs) sadness misery tragedy like like 
not tragedy on a grand scale, but like the human experience of small tragedy, the, the human experience of grief as inclusive in the Christmas procedure, rather than saying, oh, that's separate. Like Christmas, you only get to feel happy. It's like, no, you you feel sad. And that too is part of, of Christmas yeah. to, to kind of make it seem more real. I, I think what makes that feel more real is how tongue in cheek the sadness is where unlike castle on a cloud where it's just sad ballad sad like very sentimental mm-hmm. of <laughs> grief as a very just like a pretty ballad that the child's singing um it's not christmas till somebody cries is upbeat and there's sort of a wink at the audience and it's acknowledging the hard things without trying to make you feel sad about them it's it's like the song itself feels so much like it's a coping mechanism in how it's talking about these things even amongst like children dealing with grief and poverty amongst the Tenardier household alone like even racking the focus all the way to that of the Tenardier children including Cosette in this who feels the most real or like it would you rank them in terms of like who feels like they have a kind of a more real story and who feels like they have a slightly more manufactured story that is a that type of question I'm answering it in my head in terms of my own personal uh-huh. experiences uh-huh. because I am talking to like a grown version of Gavroche right now. <laughs> so because you know that character reminds me of somebody I know in real life, he kind of feels more real for that regard. <laughs> Which has nothing to do with the craft of the storytelling, just my own personal baggage I'm bringing to the text. So Gavroche is is most real. And then amongst Cosette and Eponine. Cosette has always felt less real because she gets the guy. And a happy ending, right? And the happy ending, yeah. Eponine dies tragically in Marius' arms and certainly that was the song I listened to. Mm -hmm way more times than a heart full of love like i don't listen to the happy love song growing up i i was a moody teenager i was drawn to the pining lovesick happening a little fall of rain like really does speak to like (laughs) yeah teenage experience there's some there's something so emo and emotive about that that i think is extra about it Mm -hmm. even though yeah you and I didn't die as teens. Correct. <laughs> we just felt like that. It's one of the things we bonded over as adults. Like, oh, you didn't die either. Hey, let's be friends. <laughs> it's a, a true thing amongst all of my friends, actually. <laughs> You're all, you've all made it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Very lucky. Um, do you like, agree that is that how you would rank them like eponine kind of the most real i i think that has some draw to it and i'm really fascinated by the fact that we both feel that way that it really does seem amongst all of the misery and everything the fact that cosette gets like so (laughs) it's like yeah bad things happened to her as a child i don't want to deny that but then it seems like she kind of has like good things happen to her. Like of all of the um, uh, friends of the ABC, Marius gets to live. Right. Number one. Yep. Jean Valjean comes out of nowhere as we, I'm, I'm trying not to talk about Jean Valjean much this episode because we focused so much on him last episode. Mm-hmm. And there's so many other interesting characters to talk about, but Jean Valjean, Santa Claus comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And Cosette has like wealth. Like per- perpetual wealth, both from Jean Valjean and then also from Marius. And amongst these terrible economic kind of situations and everything, it feels weird that there's like, and this one's innocent and good and gets good things happen to her. Because then it's like, wait, are all the other characters like, are they less pure of heart? And that's why they end up poor and dead? Yeah, that's exactly how I felt about Annie. 
where the show begins. Annie's this sad orphan. She's really hopeful she'll find her parents, but she's in this like abusive orphanage and that sadness sort of pulls in the audience to make you care about her. But then the rest of the show is just her going up and up and up where she meets her adopted father figure who happens to be a billionaire. So by the end of the show, she has also inherited a lot of wealth. I did not swear. So I might be able to just take the word out. So just also, billionaire. So, no, okay, so, so, <laughs> so Annie ends up getting everything she wants and more mm-hmm. because she gets adopted by Daddy Warbucks who happens to be not even a millionaire, a billionaire who automatically she gets welcomed into this world of extreme wealth. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, all of her orphan friends from the orphanage get invited for Christmas and then they have to go back to their lives where they don't have this kind of easy way out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, why is, why are Annie and Cosette so like, why, why are they the ones that get singled out, get the wealth, and then become sort of the source of the happy ending. And you feel good because you're like, oh, yay, things worked out for these characters. But it's just that one individual character amidst a mess of Mm -hmm. other inequalities and hardships. I'm going to make something cringe, which is that I always wanted to play FDR in a production of (laughs) Danny. I love that. (laughs) I have a question, which is, is Les Mis comedy oh boy it ends in a wedding it ends in a wedding like it ends with the inamorata it ends with with our ingenue and our our darling young man of noble birth like getting married and going off into the sunset together structurally comedies go from chaos to order and i think you could argue that there is order in the end Mm -hmm. like the Compared to, I mean, it ends with Jean Valjean's dying. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you get the sense that things are going to work out pretty well for Marius and Cosette in his absence. In, so, in many ways, yeah. like, Valjean dying is like, now they don't have Valjean's like past haunting them anymore. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. They're able to move on from the chaos of him being on the run and trying to escape his past if you had an alternative story where either marius and cosette also die okay or we just don't see the wedding you end the story <laughs> like valjean and javert and like that's where the story ends like and we don't get the marius cosette wedding well I- would lame is feel more real if either they died or we just didn't get to the happy ending how does the novel end? Does the novel also end with the the wedding? Effectively, yeah. It's it's a it, the novel has a denouement. This is the final book of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, but the first chapter of the final book. Okay. So final volume, final book within that volume. I believe this is uh, cool. book nine within that volume. Chapter one: Pity for the unhappy, but indulgence for the happy. It is a terrible thing to be happy. How content one is, how all-sufficient one finds it, how, being in possession of the false object of life, happiness, one forgets the true object, duty. Mm. Let us say, however, that the reader would do wrong were he to blame Marius. I like that paragraph because it's both tragedy and comedy. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah... The the ending where everyone's happy and there's order restored is the tragedy. There's this line in Ursula Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas that always sticks with me, which is, how is one to tell about joy? There's this difficulty to depict happiness and make it believable unless it's offset with suffering. Of course, how is one to tell about joy also invokes a broader thesis we borrow from Borges and gets mentioned specifically in The Shape of the Sword, the idea of what one means, that one man is all men, which of course we talked about a lot last time with Valjean, Chantemathieu, and Santa Claus. Whatever one man does, it is as though all men did it. 
That is why it is not unfair that a single act of disobedience in a garden should contaminate all humanity. That is why it is not unfair that a single Jew's crucifixion should be enough to save it. Schopenhauer may have been right. I am other men. Any man is all men. Shakespeare is somehow the wretched John Vincent Moon. How is one to tell about joy? Which Ursula Gwynne goes kind of to lengths to talk about the fact that happy people are not stupid people. That in describing people having joy, it's so easy to describe them as like, it's so easy to think about them as insufficiently realistic about the world. It's so easy to think of them as not very clever because it's like, oh, if they're happy, they must not be, you know, clever. They must not be informed about the world and everything. It's it's so hard to describe a series of people being happy. <laughs> like that that's just not something we do in the course of fiction, particularly. It's it's a difficult thing to try to depict and explain and instill this idea of happiness and have it read as real to a reader like it's difficult for the writer and the reader to embark on a journey of you know investigating or exploring or understanding joy i think rom-coms <laughs> do it well though i think there are genres that are built around love and joy and happiness but their appeal is that they're escapism that they don't mm-hmm. feel real in the sense that you're talking about you know you pick up the most recent one I read was My Roommate is a Vampire, kind of a Halloween rom- romantic mm-hmm. comedy, supernatural, goofy, over the top, very fun because these characters fall in love and you get to experience mm-hmm. their joy and their happiness. But also he's a vampire and there's a lot of very silly um, tropes that get played with that it's just like, yeah, it's a- a- escapism. A perfect segue then to... A character who I think exhibits some of the most joy in the story of Les Mis. I think in the musical, Cosette gets a little bit more of it. Uh, Marius gets a little bit more of it. But I really do think in the story, Gavroche is kind of like master of his own world in a way that like few of the other characters get to be. And Especially the versions that do the song Little People. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I forgot about that song because is that mm-hmm. left out of a number of I, I latest think it productions? Was, yeah, I, it's not on all the recordings, but I, I think the London cast recording has it. Mm-hmm. And it's just a very upbeat, exactly what you're saying, Gavroche kind of creating his own world, um, comic relief in the dreadful dreariness of act two mm-hmm. it, it's interesting given how much of the squalor of the present state of france in les mis how much misery we should expect from gavroche's life as a homeless child yeah uh, <laughs> the story really goes to length i mean so much of the text of les mis details the experience of Gavroche and of his ilk of the just various urchinry of of Paris in particular and like how that and how they have different you know uh slang languages in the different parts of Paris how they have different like habits and customs and like this whole sub-society and, and everything amongst things and it seems so bizarre to think about how unfortunate the circumstances of Gavroche are and the fact that like he he is a child who dies he's a child who believes in a better future for France as much as any of the friends of the ABC do and dies in effort of trying to help the revolutionary movement like like he's so much a part of of it and that loss and everything is kind of a signal of like the loss of innocence of of you know any of the characters who do survive and everything and marius does a good job saving gavroche's life at least once uh which is a a very cool thing and a nice culmination of marius's debt to the Tenardier family because this part didn't get into the previous recording because i cut out the whole first part hey listener at home did you know that gavroche is 
the son of the Tenardiers and Eponine's little brother. Yeah, I I know this is not quite what you're saying, mm-hmm. but Gavroche becoming the like this martyr figure in mm-hmm. Les Mis makes him very appealing. He's like kind of happy-go-lucky and then he dies tragically. And it got me again thinking about Annie and these Broadway shows mm-hmm. that make suffering as a child seem so appealing. There's a line in Annie where Mrs. Hannigan jokes, I don't know why anybody would want to be an orphan. And when I saw that this last time, I was like, I know why. You get to sing and dance on stage. It looks so fun. Um, so, there, yeah, there's also that weird romanticizing of squalor and poverty and homelessness and wrapping that in with the innocence and joy of an idyllic childhood. Uh-huh. And then, like, just mixing it all together and presenting it on stage. Yeah. Yeah. The. I think Eponine and Gavroche as kind of foils for one another. And you, you could extend that to the other Tenardier children who just don't matter as much uh, and aren't features in the musical, I think, at all, particularly. Yeah. Because there are a bunch of other Tenardier children who are relevant yeah, in, in other ways. Yeah, into the musical. But the fact that the homeless one ends up happier and better off than the one who's actually staying, like Eponine with madame and monsieur Thenardier, uh, is is in a terrible situation going back to the form of the sword there's a line from it that really stuck with me as representative of so much in les mis which is only lost causes are of any interest to a gentleman he had studied ardently and with some vanity virtually every page of one of those communist manuals He would haul out his dialectical materialism to cut off any argument. There are infinite reasons a man may have for hating or loving another man. Moon reduced the history of the world to one sordid economic conflict. He declared that the revolution was foreordained to triumph. I replied that only lost causes were of any interest to a gentleman. Ooh. Yeah. Which is both a thing about the slim chances of any revolutionary movement against oppressive states that applies to the Friends of the ABC and everything. But also there's this bit that doesn't particularly happen in the musical, easily could have, that I'm like fascinated by. I'm thinking a lot about the pivotal scene in the middle of the book in the Tenardier's apartment when the philanthropist, who is secretly Jean Valjean, has been lured there and is about to visit. To make sure this kindly rich man does choose to bestow his gifts on them, Tenardier orders his family to make their lives even more wretched putting out the fire, breaking their only chair, having Eponine smash their one window with her hands so the wind blows through, which also leaves her with like a jagged bleeding cut. Only lost causes are of any interest to a gentleman. Santa won't bestow his gifts upon us unless we're pitiful enough. It's not Christmas until somebody cries. If you want to know just how wild this scene goes and how it escalates with Marius Javert, two guns, and a life debt, you can catch a bonus episode of Catherine and I going deep into some parts of Lame's the book that don't make it into the musical over on the Moonshot Network's Patreon at patreon.com slash moonshot network. There's so much... That goes so on. Much in the book. <laughs> it's it's such a fast like you could cut out all of the stuff that's in the musical and anything that is both in the musical in the book you could take out all of the parts that are in the musical and then still make a musical about what's left it's in- <laughs> over three hours long i'm sure <laughs> and so probably you could do that a couple times too mm-hmm. and so Speaking of lost causes, and in a sense, yeah. I suppose, gentlemen, but like mostly in a pejorative sense. <laughs> okay. Like Not... Oliver Warbucks? <laughs> I was thinking more like uh, police informants. Oh, okay. And Javert kind of trying to in like secret himself into the the barricade boys. And right. like 
Javert and Vincent Moon as like parallels in a sense. Although you could also do Marius oh. and Vincent Moon because Marius also is a snitch to the police. That's a thing that I don't think they do in the musical, but like. No, I think they kept that out <laughs> to make it more sympathetic, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of funny if lost causes are the only causes of interest to a gentleman, that the way that the shape of the sword, the story gets told. Uh-huh in a way where he doesn't want to admit up front that he is the lost cause. Mm-hmm. The story gets told through, oh yeah, the, hi, I'm fine. I'm just a normal guy. Vincent Moon, on the other hand, oh boy. Mm-hmm. What a piece of work. Javert <laughs> character. Mm-hmm. And then the, the twist at the end is, actually, I'm Vincent Moon. I only told you all this this way, because if you knew you were talking to a lost cause, you probably wouldn't keep listening you wouldn't want to have anything to do with me mm-hmm. which i think is you know tying into our earlier idea about stories being sadder or truer it's like how much more true does this weird little short story seem with the fact that the guy who's telling is like listen i'm i am judas iscariot you know what i mean like i am like not a good dude despise me and we're like yeah that this is is plausible this is believable because he's so like pitiful and terrible people seem mm-hmm. to really like javert who to me is like yeah. up there with like like uh, top villains in history in a bad way <laughs> like and yet mm-hmm. he often gets played by very appealing leading men like terence mann or norm lewis who often get cast as kind of the like sexy male lead um <laughs> Chauvelin and, is, okay. is not Chauvelin you know what I mean Chauvelin Chauvelin is sexy Javert in the Scarlet Pimpernel oh okay okay who turns man please right? uh, yeah <laughs> I, Chauvel- I, Javert yeah. is also not the beast another Terrence man uh origination i believe i was gonna say javert is actually kind of similar to phantom of the opera though because norm lewis played the phantom Mm -hmm. in the fact that like as a character not not appealing at all very dangerous man crummy morals Mm -hmm. but because he gets played in a particular way with javert i remember being fascinated by javert well as a younger person Mm -hmm. and I think it's that anti-villain. That's not the, the phrase. The anti-hero. I think Javert often gets interpreted as something of an anti-hero. Mm-hmm. Not because of the writing per se, but because he often gets played by really appealing leading men mm-hmm. like Terrence Mann or Norm Lewis, who just imbue this like charisma into that character. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people like Javert because he's like extra pitiful. I think at least <laughs> amongst the cohort of people who I talk to who have always kind of loved Les Mis as one of their top favorite things and have had yeah. a fascination with like Javert and oftentimes like Valjean and Javert as like a romantic couple and everything. I gotta say, I I see it a little bit in just how much they're obsessed with one another. Totally. If that makes sense. Yeah, kind of like a Killing Eve situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, God, I hate Javert so much. A thing that I don't think gets talked about is Javert murders Fantine. That gets left out of the musical, which is why it's not talked about when talking about the musical. When Javert, when Valjean has revealed himself and everything, like the confrontation happens and everything, the confrontation is happening. Javert has just killed Fantine and is like, that is not a crime. She is a sex worker. That is not a crime. Like, I am an officer of the law. She is not a person to me. Very detestable in the book, for sure. And then, like, when he's like, wait a minute, I can serve justice. I I thought I had done a, a malfeasance by accusing Valjean of being Valjean when he was Monsieur Le Maire. But now I know he actually is. I thought the world was, like, slightly twisting in some way towards goodness and away from justice. But no, I can twist it away from goodness and back towards, like, legalistic justice, in a sense. And... He, like, experiences, like, joy for the first time, in a way, 
like he's described as being this like arch archangel like, like that he feels mm -hmm. this like power move through him and he's like yeah. seizing upon this opportunity to do something that feels like fulfilling for once and that's killing Fantine and like arresting Valjean and destabilizing this whole like province which has been successful because it's had a good leader in the form of of Valjean Right. But so in the musical adaptation, a lot of that gets watered down. <laughs> and we have a man singing a really beautiful ballad called Stars about mm -hmm. wanting order in the universe, which abstractly is a very relatable thing. Mm -hmm. The concrete way he goes about pursuing that goal, mm -hmm. I think is pretty detestable. But from a storytelling perspective, it it is the character with a concrete goal on stage that's very specific to that character but the concrete goal represents something more abstract that more audiences can relate to mm -hmm. um and i think that's probably part of the appeal of javert is he makes such a compelling lovely argument for his abstract goal mm -hmm. order in the universe make this make sense justice whatever mm -hmm. that even though the concrete version of that is like, I want to arrest Jean Valjean for stealing a loaf of bread. And that's clearly like mm -hmm. not a great thing like, to devote your life to pursuing. To, to um, be clear. Because he makes his argument for it. <laughs> the thing that he wants to arrest Jean Valjean for isn't stealing a loaf of bread. Oh, it's, no, it's escaping prison? No. It's no, okay. for formerly having been a prisoner. A convict? Okay. And yeah. just not sharing that on his like passport like around uh, for like just returning uh, to civil life instead yeah. of living a terrible life and dying it's just like no you aren't allowed to be just a citizen of france like that is that is the crime that you have committed you like it's not like yeah. really hurt no. yes valjean has hurt people it, that's there's a whole section of time where he's not a particularly good person but the thing that javert is actually chasing him down for is like you tried to be a good person and you cannot be a good person there it is not allowed. again that gets watered down in the musical <laughs> the specifics are much less uh egregious it's left a little bit more vague i think mm -hmm. than than all of that i think the closest we get to that is yeah. when valjean in the musical talks about he talks about like hating the world who has always hated him right okay like when he does go around with his uh, the world who always hated me right isn't that a sure that sounds familiar yeah um when when he's talking about like he's going to become a new man after the bishop yeah. like was kind to him and everything um i when Vajon does go around with his like hey this is my passport i'm willing to pay for stuff i'm i'm like not breaking the law everyone is so miserable to him like it it nearly kills him it is one of the most like painful points of of the whole book is like experiencing the world through valjean's eyes it's like oh yeah i would break the law a lot too if people were this miserable to me after i'd suffered in prison for uh what 19 years that sounds right yeah just uh for accuracy <laughs> i'm looking up the lyrics so it's for i had come to hate the world this world that always hated me Mm -hmm. Take an eye for an eye, turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived for. This is all I have known. Mm -hmm. And that's him reflecting on his past life before the act of kindness from the bishop mm -hmm. set him on a new forking path, if you will. Which is, I think, in the musical, I feel like it implies that, like, this this whole history, which it, it surely does entail, like, the 19 years of prison. But it's also, like, even outside of prison, his life is extremely extremely bad and that's why he's like wait a minute if i just ignore if i break the law in this one little way it doesn't hurt anyone i can like follow this grace and then provide grace to others which is like what he literally does for the whole rest of the book is like be kind and generous he's he's a philanthropist to others <sighs> i ended up talking about vajan a bunch again <laughs> apologize or uh, apologies to to the listener and and to you Catherine for never not talking about Jean Valjean it happens we've all been there <laughs> um what's a good way to kind of tie all these threads together um we could talk about Marius can we try to pull in Carly mm -hmm. uh ooh, ooh, ooh. 
Uh, so there's this line in Carly Rae Jepsen's It's Not Christmas Till Somebody Cries, which goes, mm-hmm. my uncle made it worse by talking politics. I had mm. a few opinions, might have started a fight. Well, it's not Christmas till somebody cries. How important is fighting for what you believe in? To what? Um, to Christmas, to real life, to making your life true, to telling the stories that you want to tell, to what you live for and what you die for, to dreaming a dream of days gone by. Are you asking how important is it to pick fights with your racist uncle at Christmas? To be willing to do so and to to actually do so. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think I am asking that question. Is that an important part of the procedure, the, the procession of Christmas? Is that an important part of reality is not saying, I'm looking to start a fight, but it's when there is the intrusion of, you know, let's say, when bad politics happen in the world, standing up against those things. That that's like a necessary part of Christmas about reality, about revolutions, right? I agree on one level. Something that complicates that is human psychology and that the the experience where sometimes when you're talking to somebody who is like really adamant about their point, mm-hmm. sometimes it makes you more adamant about your own point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you ever experienced that or like read about that kind of phenomenon? This is Ryan does a lot of like reading and listening to like how to help people who are in cults and how yeah. to help deal with stuff. And it turns out telling people that they're wrong doesn't help. Yeah, yeah, no, that's what I mean. <laughs> so, like, sometimes when you say like picking a fight, standing up for what you believe in, there's such a careful way you have to do that. Mm-hmm. Where it's not going to actually just make things worse. Mm-hmm. But and by making things worse, I, yeah, I mean, like, make the other person just more defiant of their own opinion. Mm-hmm. But also at the same time, sometimes speaking up, even if it doesn't convince that person, it does, like, let other people in the room know that they aren't alone in having mm-hmm. an exception yeah. to the negative politics. And so, you know. Yeah. I, that is a good point. It depends on how many people are in the room and who mm-hmm. you're talking with. And extrapolating that out to, you know, we've got two different rev- two different potential revolutionary attempts between the Irish War of Independence and this particular French rebellion. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I want to reinforce the idea that even though we have not necessarily successful results for the individual characters and everything, that a larger struggle against oppression is a valiant and good thing. Because I think that that's something that, yeah. to me, is very clear from victor hugo's perspective like Mm -hmm. it's very clear that attempts at revolution are worthwhile you know as 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 we look at that particular conversation between the bishop and the (laughs) the member of the convention you know this Mm -hmm. idea that the the french revolution is the most important thing since the the advent of christ right that um quite literally advent you know leading up to to christmas that (laughs) that these things are necessary in a way to push back against oppression and i feel like that's kind of what carly ray jepson is getting at in this song you think mm-hmm. yeah so you think there's an implicit encouragement it's not christmas till somebody cries have those fights stand up for mm-hmm. uh, like don't shy away from those hard conversations at christmas it's have that constant it's better reality sleep mm-hmm. in. if your only options are have a few opinions maybe start a fight or don't yeah. if those are your only two options picking the fight is like you know worthwhile right yeah yeah i see that it, it's she's so tongue-in-cheek about it mm-hmm. i'm not convinced that she's actually saying like go out and do this because she's kind of flirty about it um but, but think about lamez right yeah yeah Th- think about um the the friends of the abc the the, the barricade boys yeah they are at this point where they see this as a necessary thing for the good of France, the good of their local communities, the, the good of Paris, the good of the individual people, even though it costs them their lives, right? Yeah. Because, you know, 
have a few opinions might have started a fight. Okay. So yeah, if you're so if your uncle says something that's just like not accurate or problematic at Christmas and you're mm-hmm. like, hey, maybe let's think about that a little differently, you're not really risking your life. The fear is you're risking ruining Christmas. But but Carly Ray Jepsen is telling us it's not actually Christmas till somebody cries. That that is the conversation that makes it Christmas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The the tears, even if the tears are on your part, because like I gave it my all and I couldn't do any better, but I like I did give it my all. I'm gonna go yeah. cry about it in my room for a little bit and then I'll come back down for dessert. Or whatever, <laughs> you know. Yeah. That that yeah. too is part of like the struggle, right? That part that too is part of yeah. our revolutionary movement. Yeah, but also you're not alone because there's a lot of other people mm-hmm. having that same experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is the story he told, his English interspersed with Spanish and even with Portuguese. In 1922, in one of the cities of Connaught, I was one of the many young men who were conspiring to win Ireland's independence. Of my companions there, some are still living, working for peace. Others, paradoxically, are fighting under English colors, at sea or in the desert. One, the best of us all, was shot at dawn in the courtyard of a prison, executed by men filled with dreams. Oh man, my translation is so much worse. Mm-hmm. Up by men filled with sleep. And I just, I think this is a very fun pin to our discussion last time about dreams and sleep. Yeah. You know, this idea of now life has killed the dream I dream. Like, what a fascinating thing to say, executed by men filled with dreams. Like, yeah. Like, we don't think about the military police in Les Miserables, in, in the French Revolution. We don't think about, like, the other side in the fight for the barricade, because, like, why would we? Yeah. But... Well, we, we get Javert, so we that's our invitation to think a little bit about mm-hmm. what's happening on that side. It's interesting to think about describing the opposition in this way though it's interesting to think about the fact that like they too have a dream for another vision of france your uncle too who you're fighting with that christmas has a vision for what christmas is certainly yeah and i'd like to find a way to like be at peace with that idea without giving any like implicit or complicit support to their vision of Christmas, to their mm-hmm. ideas for France, to their actions. Yeah. You know, I don't want to say, well, everybody's got a different opinion, like, and I just like think, square there. Yeah. But I think it often comes down to that concrete abstract goal, because very often their abstract goal is pretty similar to abstract goals that a lot of people can relate to it's just the concrete way of getting there gets distorted or is leaving out important considerations mm-hmm. and yeah <laughs> and i suppose in a way you're thinking about javert as our emblem of this sort of man javert is mm-hmm. someone who effectively doesn't have dreams Javert doesn't have a vision of a future for France. Javert has the existence of the present and past and is like delimited in this way. I disagree. Mm-hmm. I think the song Stars, that's his I Want song. And I, I want we, things to be the way that they are and can never change from. Is that the like, is that the I want of stars? Or am I misunderstanding what stars as a song is about? Um so it must be, for so it is written on the doorway to paradise that those who falter and those who fall must pay the price. Lord, let me find him, that I may see him safe behind bars. I will never rest. He wants, his vision of France is one of justice and order and logic. And in his logical brain, 
Valjean is a bad man and must be punished. And he's missing out on the nuance and the reality of the situation. But I think he does have a vision for France. I mean, he says, stars in your multitude, scarce to be counted, filling the darkness with order and light. He wants to see a France that fills the darkness with order and light. Mm. And again, like what that means to him, especially in the book, is quite abhorrent. But I don't think it's fair to say that he's not dreaming. I guess just to me, his the answer to the question, somewhere beyond the barricade, is there a world you long to see? For Javert, the answer is no. No. No, I, I disagree. I think um, somewhere beyond the barricade, yeah, he wants to see everybody who's causing this ruckus punished. I don't think that's, you know, we might have to agree to disagree on this one. <laughs> I don't uh, like it, but I, I think it is something that he he does have a vision for the world as he thinks it should be and wants it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a good vision for the world, but I think he does have one. I mean, he sings in a musical. You can't really sing in a musical if you don't want something. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on this season of I'll Be Pod for Castmas, brought to you by the Moonshot Network. Yay, Moonshot Network! <laughs> I'm Juliet. You can find my writings at Folly on co-host, and you can find the show at Christmas on co-host. I'm Catherine, and I'm so grateful you've listened to us and joined us this, this season. That's it. Happy Castmas to all. And to all a pod night. Listen every other Thursday wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at ArgentPod.